Amen. Amen. Well, beloved, if you would remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, this is part six of the exposition of the rich young ruler, Jesus' encounter with this young man asking that very important question, what, uh, how was he to gain eternal life? What must he do? And beloved, before I read the text and open up this morning's sermon, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Now, blessed Lord, we have spent many Lord's Day mornings looking at this text, and we have a few more to go. Come and bless this word. Come and enrich our minds and fill our hearts with truth and, Lord, desire, a desire for this eternal life, the kingdom of God, a desire to Lord, follow you and to go after you and all that it means for us to do so. Come, O Lord, this morning as our great Father and educate us and instruct us, correct us. Lord, in, in all of it, Lord, convince us, Lord, of your love and mercy. Motivate us, enlighten us, but Lord, persuade us to Lord, wholeheartedly go after you with all that we have and with all that we are. Lord, let us not look back. Let us not put our hands to this great kingdom work and look back and find ourselves unworthy of such a great blessing. So Lord, we ask this in Christ's name, amen. And beloved, I wanna begin reading at verse 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, then who can be saved? And he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And thus ends the reading of the text this morning. You may be seated. And beloved, I want to continue to focus on the latter part of verse 22. We've looked at those steps, if you will, of what Jesus had counseled the rich young ruler to do. These were the things that he had to do in order to, well, possess what he so earnestly looked for, and that is eternal life. A couple of things to note, though, before we get really into the lesson is to recognize that at least as we've been sitting here under these several sermons that we have recognized that eternal life is not something that's just out there somewhere. 
That would be a great mistake for any of us to make. We have learned from the text that eternal life is something that we possess in this world before we enter into the next world. In fact, it is something that we have to possess in this life in order for us to have it secured in the next. And that's why this question is so valuable to us. It's important. We need to be looking at our spiritual investments, these investments of life that we make. Every day we're making investments and the choices we make. That's how we make these investments. This is how we are determining how we will spend eternity. Our choices highlight, if you will, before God and man who we are and what we value in this life. And that's really what come to fruit in the rich young ruler's life. That's why this, this interaction in the, in the gospels is so valuable and so important to us as we take the time to meditate on it, to study it, and to really examine ourselves by it. The rich young ruler was someone who was, well, blessed, if you will. I mean, we say, oh, they're blessed. We use that word very loosely, don't we? And that's how I'm using it here for him. But he had sort of obtained these things that men look for. He had honor. He had authority. He had youth on his side. He had the vigor and strength of youth. And he had great wealth. From an earthly viewpoint, what was lacking? He would have been admired, wasn't he? Even in our own day, he would be someone admired. He was religious, he was moral, and he was a man of great means. Yet, he had not entered into the kingdom of God. He did not possess that which was the most valuable of all possessions, and that is eternal life. Now, I'm not talking about eternal life and living forever. Beloved, we know that all men live forever. We're not talking about living forever. When we, when we talk about eternal life, we're not just talking about the, the longevity of life. We're not just talking about when we shed this body in death that somehow we cease to exist. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about where we spend our eternal life, where we spend that forever life in its essence, in its nature and character. And we might say in its, well, how would you put it? Pleasantry. That it's a comfortable life. It's a life that's in the comfortable, blessed presence of God rather than that damned life in hell where the Bible tells us there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we're not talking about just living forever, drumming on forever in existence. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about living the supreme quality and the essence of life that God has well ordained for us to enjoy in his presence. Do we have it? One of the things that I don't want to do is 
We talk about, and this is something that I think we all probably find ourselves doing from time to time. I think just because of the nature of the conversation, when we talk about heaven and its greatness, it's oftentimes we, we put down this life to build that life up, but that'd be a great mistake to make. This life is good. I would say even that this life, and I know for some people, they would say, oh, you just don't know the life that I've lived. You don't know the suffering that I have experienced and all of these things. And I can completely understand that for some. There are situations that I learn about that just break me down and cause me to weep on the inside and outside because I don't know how people can exist in certain circumstances. And I can only just cry out to God on their behalf. But all things being equal, this is a great life. This is a great place to live. The the Lord made the earth in all of its fullness for us to enjoy. And when he created it, he said, it is very good. He designed it. He was the great architect and he brought it to fruit and he put us in it to enjoy and to glorify him and to exercise godliness, dominion in this environment. But the next life will be greater. Great, greater. It'll be greater. So we don't want to talk about that life, that eternal life, as if this is nothing. We want to understand it in perspective and context and keep our minds sharp and able to discern both. But we also need to recognize that we are to give up the greater for, or the the great for the greater. And this is where we come to this command that Jesus gives to the rich young ruler. What I will focus on this morning is that imperative that Jesus says, follow me. You can see in your bulletin, I'm asking you a question, or at least I pose the sermon in a question, or I'm posing the argument to us all in a question. Am I following Jesus? Number one, do I understand what that means? What does it mean to follow Jesus? If we don't know what it means, then we really can't make a good sound judgment on whether or not we're doing it if we don't know what it is. But why is this question so important in that string of imperatives that Jesus gives to the rich young ruler? I mean, there's a string of them here. Is one greater than the other? Where do they fit? How do they comport together nicely and perfectly and logically so that we can make sense of it? Well, you might find it out this way. That is, it's important for us to recognize that this imperative at the end, I think, is the the seal of the other imperatives. The seal. It, It seals, if you will, the spiritual nature and understanding of the kingdom of God and what it really means to live even in this life before God and before God in his son. Thomas Manton made this comment and I thought it was a good one. 
He said, why is this command to follow Jesus, well, the important one? It's not the most important. I mean, it's important. Well, because, he says, men and unregenerate men can be very, can excel at charity. He said, unregenerate men can excel at charity. I got to pondering that and thinking about it, and then I began working through those imperatives. And you could even say this, brothers and sisters, unregenerate men even give religion priority. I mean, here's the rich young ruler. Remember, what's the command? What's the string of imperatives? Go, sell, give, and follow me. That's the imperatives. When an unregenerate man can give, a pro, give priority to religion, good people can go to church and never meet Christ in a saving way. The Bible's full of it. What was one of the condemnations are, well, I think that's fair to you, but one of the condemnations that God had over with his covenant people in, uh, of Judah and Israel was what? They draw near to me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. Wouldn't you say that, well, they were guilty of not possessing eternal life, but they were certainly hypocritical in coming before God and singing the Psalms and making all the confessions and yet never, ever, well, possessing him. Unregenerate people, beloved, can give a priority to religion. Look at all the cults. They think they find their way to God. In fact, how many of you have said this in your mind or to your uh, partner, to the people in your room, say, you know, often Jehovah Witnesses, I mean, if we could get Christians to be as dedicated as Jehovah Witnesses, why, wow, we'd win the world. Well, that's, this, is, this is what we're talking about. As Thomas Manton said, unregenerate men can excel at charity. They can go give great wealth to the poor. I didn't make them Christians. Religion doesn't make you a Christian. Go and giving, um, selling all that you have. I mean, again, living a very minimal life, a minimalist. You know, that's a big movement now. A lot of them, a lot of the young people now are saying, oh, these material things bog me down and, you know, let's live the simplistic life now. Uh, you know, I, I could say some things about those generations, but I won't because they're all over the place. They're looking for something. They're lost. And they won't find what they're looking for in great possessions or in no possessions. They're only going to find what they're looking for. Like is all these generations, what is it, A, B, C, D, generation Z, B, D. I don't know how many are. I could keep asking my daughter, what generation am I and what are you? I mean, I just thought we were people. But every generation, no matter what the circumstances, are not going to find that ultimate satisfaction in having too much or nothing. They're going to find it in Christ. And that's the message, isn't it? 
We're not about excluding the wealthy. Jesus didn't exclude the wealthy. He just said it's hard for the wealthy. And that is true. And I'm gonna look, we're going to look at that. But sometimes it's hard for the poor too. So he goes, look, he goes, look, sell, just go rid yourself of these responsibilities, this great wealth that you have. Why? Because you're going to follow me and you don't need those things. What you're going about to embark on, this is not needed because Jesus is summoning. He's calling the rich young ruler to come and be a part of this entourage that is following Jesus up to Jerusalem. And again, we see the third imperative there, give to the poor, as I've already said, as Matton has pointed out, right, that there's, well, unregenerate men and women, families can give exceedingly great wealth to the poor. Paul even recognizes in the book of Acts chapter 28 and verse 2 that even when that those who had ministered to him were pagans and they ministered to him exceedingly well. So they didn't have to, quote, be Christians in order to take care of his needs. When we talk about this last imperative of follow me, what are we talking about? Well, this is the difference because unregenerate men don't follow Jesus. Because at the very heart of following Jesus is self-denial. That's the very heart of what it is to follow Jesus. That's the essence of the meaning of the term, follow me. Yes, for the rich young ruler, he was going to follow him and also physically, not just philosophically, not just morally, not just religiously, not just in spirit, but physically come and walk with me as I, well, head up to my fate in Jerusalem. But for us, it is certainly, right, philosophical and moral and religious. We are to follow Jesus and we need to really ask ourselves, what does that look like for us? Well, it involves, in essence, this, a life of self-denial, and we'll, we'll unpack that in there in a little bit. But let's, I want to at least address and touch on this idea of good works and morality and how they alone are not acceptable. I, I, I am, conv- I, I'm, probably sure of it. I'm sure of it. I'm not going to say I'm probably sure. That would be sort of a contradiction. I'm sure of it. We all know good people. We all know good people that are not Christians. And, and I remember I was engaging this one fellow in evangel, in, you know, uh, some evangelism. And um, this was a this was a sticking point for him. Good people ought to go to heaven. And uh, so, he, I mean, I, we, he and I, we, we have been, we had really been engaged for about an hour. I mean, intense engagement. And at the end, or what ended it, 
was he looked at me and he said, let me tell you something. He said, if I'm understanding what you're saying, he said, then my grandmother's in hell right now. And I was kind of like, okay. He said, because that was the finest woman that ever walked this earth. She baked, she cooked, she served, she cleaned, she ministered. She was going and visiting people in the hospital. I, I mean, really, he gave this, this testimony of a, of a very good woman. But she was not a Christian. And she did not ever put her faith in Jesus Christ. And she did never believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. In fact, she was a Mormon And he goes, are you telling me this? I mean, he, he, was, he was upset. So I'm at this juncture in this. I'm like, what do I do? But tell the truth. I said, sir, your grandmother sounds like a good woman. And I am certain that there were many people helped by her, according to your testimony. But I'm telling you this, without Christ, no one goes to heaven. And he just shut me off and walked away. Now, I'll leave it in the Lord's hands of his outcome in his life, right? But this is what we're talking about. What is it, though? What is it that sanctifies that goodness? Those good works. Look at, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, but without faith, the scripture says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Beloved, it is faith in Jesus Christ that sanctifies one's goodness for eternal life. That makes it acceptable to God. So it's in Christ, but it's that faith that's put in Christ. That's why the Bible says that the plowing of the wicked is sin. Plowing is good. Working the land is good. Being industrious is good. Producing a crop is good. Selling it to, to, to provide for your family and to, to provide for other families is a good thing. But without faith in Christ, it is seen as sin. Because what? He's failing to recognize that all good things in essence come from God. He's the giver. He's the blesser. That's why we don't focus on the blessing without the blesser. It's great to enjoy one another. It's great to enjoy the good things in life, but never ever to the enjoyment of apart from the giver. When we talk about following Jesus, we are talking about just being a Christian. What is a Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What 
in other texts of Scripture and Luke and the other gospel writers say, I mean, it's a, this, what is, what's this discipleship? What's a disciple? Well, brothers and sisters, in essence, it's nothing more than a learner. A learner. A pupil. A student. This is why you won't find unregenerate people necessarily following Jesus Christ. Why? Because we come to follow Jesus in essence to learn of him, to be taught of him, and to, to, to mold ourselves to his teaching, to his way of thinking, to what, the way he sees the world, the way he sees life the way he sees sin and virtue and righteousness and justice and wickedness. His worldview, his philosophy, heaven, and, well, of course, our heavenly father. This idea of following Jesus means to, well, as I said, to deny self, but it, The idea of denying in, in, in the Greek is to forget self, to forget yourself. Now let that sink, just let that definition settle a little bit. To forget yourself. So to deny myself is to forget what? Well, they, these things that I think make life work special. I forget all that. And now I want to acknowledge and affirm. What's the opposite of deny? Affirm. I affirm that Jesus is the truth. That Jesus is the way. That Jesus is the life. I deny myself. That is this idea of even my own pleasure being, well, ultimate is not true. If it was true, then, well, once pleasure started, it would never end. But we know that's not true, right? It's the ebb and flow of, of life and the difficulties and pleasure comes and goes. Why is it that many of the people that commit suicide have a lot of material possessions in life? They have pleasures at their fingertips, if you will. If, if that was penultimate, if that was the ultimate supreme and the answer to all of life, then they would not be, well, in that category, would they? But yet they are. Why? But, but they don't have that. That's not ultimate. It's fleeting. It comes and goes. It's, it's why? Because there's no anchor in their life. There's no Christ in their life. There's no faith in their life. And that is the anchor of all pleasure and goodness and happiness. And that's why they can't have those things. You can't have those things. I cannot possess those things outside of Christ. And what it means to follow him and what it means to learn of him and be a pupil and a disciple. Someone who is constantly putting off self, forgetting oneself and affirming Christ as, well, the way, truth, and life. Hmm. Luke chapter 14, 
verse 26, 27, and 33. Notice, I mean, Luke's already addressed this in some degree. I mean, he says, if anyone comes after me, he's, he's talking about, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is teaching us there. Obviously, parents are a good thing. He's not commanding hatred of them. He's not even commanding them in one sense that you hate your own life. So what is he, what is he, what is he referring to here? What he's saying is, look, as you come after me, everything else must be subordinate. Everything else must be subordinate to me. I'm the affirmation of your life. I'm where you go to get the ultimate pleasure, happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, meaning in life. Why are there so many desperate, dark, and dying people? I mean, depression is a slow death. It's a slow, miserable death. People that sit around and and just constantly dwell on the things they don't have, this victimhood mentality, slow death. Oh, it's just, our culture is slowly decaying and dying and is putrid and stinks. Why? Because they have forsaken Jesus. They have forsaken what it is to follow Jesus, to deny oneself and to affirm him and, and to embrace him. All that that entails, and we're going to look at the details in a minute. He goes on in verse 27, he says, whatsoever does not bear his, or whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In verse 33, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Why? Well, beloved, God's not going to be in competition with your possessions. God's not in competition with your parents as as high of esteem as you may have for them. And you should have a high esteem of them. God's not going to compete against your girlfriend, your wife, your husband, your children, your parents. He's not up for that. He's not going to do that. We must in this life affirm his superiority. We must, super, we must affirm what? His greatness. That's the step in what it means to become a learner. I mean, listen, listen, talking about competition. What happens when a parent's command conflicts with God's command? Uh, Listen, well, let's not start there. That's an easy one, isn't it? Let's go to a harder one. What about parents who worship their children? Oh, I can't hold my children to a godly standard. They would hate me. I cannot serve the Lord. My wife would leave me. I can't serve the Lord. My husband, well, he would be mad at me. 
Brothers and sisters, what we have to understand, this denying of self, this following of Jesus, is there's, there's no competition anymore. There is no competition. God in Christ is superior. No argument. No argument. Come with no argument. Because all of the things that you enjoy, even for the rich young ruler, all the things that he possessed, who gave them to him? Where did they originate? Did they not originate with God himself? Is it not God who distributes the wealth of of the world? It is. Is it not God who can fill a man's pocket and at the same time put holes in it? And this is similar to even what the disciples were going to experience. And this is where Peter comes and and basically questions Jesus, I mean, about his own following of, of, of Jesus. And the Lord had to tenderly, of course, address their doubts. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 says, After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And what did Jesus say to him? Follow me. Now, it's a very unique command because Levi got up from the booth and followed Jesus. He left his employment. And of course, in leaving that employment, in leaving that responsibility, what he was saying is, I'm going to walk with Jesus in in this earth, on this earth, and in this life, in, in this circumstance, and I'm going to trust him to provide all that I need. Now, we don't physically follow Jesus. He's not sitting here with us. He's not walking to the back of the worship uh, area here, and he's saying, hey, y'all, come on, follow me. He's not doing that, but he is calling us to follow him. And that means trust him. To trust him with the most valuable and precious things in this life that, well, well, things that we value. Trust him. Brothers and sisters, we have to learn or we have to understand that part of this is learning how to lose ourselves. Not, 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 not in the, the, the sort of the Eastern mystic mind of, well, we don't exist. No, no, no. We're talking about our desires and choices. We're to lose ourselves in those things that we value. That's the point of the text, isn't it? That the rich young ruler valued those things that are what? Temporal. And he valued that more than eternal life. And we have to ask ourselves even the same questions to this day. Now, brothers and sisters, as a, I know I talked about, you know, family relationships and who should have priority in those relationships. I mean, God has to be head in your Christian home. Christ, God in Christ has to be the head of your Christian home. And that is displayed every day by the choices we will all make. 
the perspective we have about this world, the discernment that we exercise in this world will all come to head in the choices that we make. And, and that's a reality for all of us. No one can escape it, but that's the truth. That's life. And this, the interaction that Jesus had with all of those who come to him and seeking counsel and challenging him or whatever the case may be. The reason the unregenerate cannot follow Jesus is because they cannot die to self. Their choices are ultimate. Their pleasure is ultimate. Their discernment is ultimate. Not the mind of God in Christ. We as Christians must always talk about or must always at least meditate upon the, what's the Lord's, what does the Lord think about this? What does the scriptures teach on this? And you have to correct yourself. You may have to correct your children. You may have to correct each other lovingly and gently. I mean, not in any harsh way. But sometimes it's like, well, what does the Bible say? I mean, what, what do the scriptures really teach about these things? And then guess what? Here's what we need to do. You know, and I would get in, you know, verbal tussles, if you will, about, well, I don't think that's right. Well, have you looked at Scripture? And then there's silence. I didn't think so. Let's look at Scripture. Let's examine the Word of God. Then let's make some determinations. Then let's shape our choices. Then let's pray for wisdom. Then let's seek counsel. Then let's begin to what? Follow Jesus. Uh, there's another aspect I remember. I thought it was, I think it's valuable to this sermon in your hearing. And that is, you know, when we talk about this, this last imperative being the seal of all of the other imperatives, well, this is where we really put the seal on our profession of faith, isn't it? Isn't, isn't duty, isn't action the seal of what we confess with our mouths? Of course it is. Romans 10, right? We believe in our hearts, right? We confess with our mouth. This is the what? This is what we are. This is what we need to believe in. This is what we need to do. And we do it. That's what it is. Action. When we made a profession of faith, when we confessed Jesus as Lord, when we were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what were we saying? That we are no longer our own possession, but His. That's what we said. That's what we said in word and symbol of baptism. We were washed and made clean. We were prepared to be his sons and daughters. And now living, following Jesus is the seal of that baptism. This is how you, well, confirm your baptism. This is how you grow in your baptism. 
This is why it's always a sweet blessing when we witness a baptism. Why? Because we get to acknowledge, well, whoa, I made the same profession. Yes, I was baptized. I made the same promises. Where am I today? Have I lived up to that baptism? Has following Jesus, has it been the seal of my profession of faith? Not for the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, the Bible tells us, left sad, verse 23, because he was extremely rich. He couldn't deny himself. He couldn't forget himself. He couldn't forget that he was a man of great means. He could not, he, he, he couldn't deny that the following Jesus was far more better than these earthly riches. He could not, brothers and sisters, forget himself that huh, he couldn't give up this God of mammon. that the God of mammon was far more pleasing and precious to him than the God of heaven. He couldn't do it. So he left sad. And the Bible tells us why he left sad. Because he had a lot of possessions. He had a lot of stuff. He could not deny himself. He could not bring himself to follow Jesus. There's another aspect of this following Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus and everything that I've talked about is sort of summed up nicely in John 10, verse 27, when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they know me. I don't know if there's a, obviously we know why the Lord chose sheep to describe us. And it's, it's, it, let's just confess, it's true. We're all over the place. We're just out there wandering around trying to figure things out. But one thing you learn about growing up on a farm and having animals and whatnot, and when you have a relationship with those animals, when they hear your voice, they often come to you because you are the source of food, nourishment, protection. And, and it's another little picture. It's another picture of like small children. When the dads are at home taking care of the children and you've been trying to do, you know, a great job. And then the mom comes home. What does the little child do when the mom goes, I'm home, mommy, help me. And they run to their mother. Or even the father, your father's come home and I'm home. Daddy, 
But this is the picture of regeneration, isn't it? This is the picture of what it is to follow Jesus Christ. There is meaningful, it matters, and there is all, all of life, truth and blessing is wrapped up in that we know him and he knows us and we are his disciples and we follow him. And it has to address this idea of service and well, let's talk about a few of these, uh, the characteristics of Christ that we should emulate. And I want to, let me, there is in one sense an aspect of Christ that we cannot emulate. We didn't come to earth to save that which is lost. We're not saviors in that sense, are we? Jesus was never an earthly father in the same sense that you are. He never had physical children. He never had a physical wife. He never owned property. So what does it mean to identify with Christ? What does it mean to be a learner? I mean, we got to take these things into consideration because when people talk about, wait a minute, what do you mean follow Jesus to emulate him? Well, he never was anything like that I know of. There, our experiences don't mesh up. So we need to identify that. What he is talking about though, beloved, he didn't have to be a physical father to be a superior, to be a nurturer, to be a lover, to be um, one who is a protector. So we have to understand that when we look at Jesus's life and his relationship with this heavenly father, and as we look at him as a whole, we are to identify those things, those character traits in his life and ask, are these part of my life? For example, how did Jesus deny himself? Well, he came to earth. He came to earth. The Bible tells us that he laid aside his glory for a season in order that he might come and offer himself up as a ransom for many. That he viewed not his glory, his, his heavenly majesty as something that would prevent him from doing so but that he was willing to lay aside that deserved majesty. He didn't forsake it. He didn't empty himself of his deity. He lays it, the authority aside so that he might now come to earth, put on human flesh, walk among men in great obscurity, feel the, the, all of the inconsistencies of the human life, of the human flesh, so that he might give himself up for God's elect. He teaches a sacrifice. That's how he denied himself. He laid aside his own interest for the interest of others. Do we do that? What is that? That's what it means to follow him. That's what it means to accept these things. That's why, now does that have a great bearing upon us as fathers? Mm, you bet it does. How about mothers? Sure. How about pastors and elders and deacons and church office? Yes, sir. How about just being a neighbor? A lot of social implications there. 
How, what else did he do? Well, he denied his own will when he was tempted of the devil. Go to Matthew 4, if you will. And what did he say? In all of this temptation with the devil, what did Jesus do to fight off the temptation? Well, he quotes the word of God. He gives himself over to the word of God. He goes, my meat and drink, right? Is the will of my father, not mine. You have to put it in context. He had been without food and drink for 40 days. He was at his weakest, mentally and physically. You go without food for 40 days and what, don't, because I, I, I don't want the liability. Don't try it, don't do it. Because it's dangerous actually. It's dangerous to do it to fast for that long, very dangerous. And yet Jesus is at his lowest and weakest and physically, and he says, you know what? I rest in the word of God, that is my will, to do his will. And Jesus, brothers and sisters, laid aside his glory and majesty to come. Second Corinthians chapter eight and verse nine, Paul writes, he says, yet for our sakes, Jesus became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. That's why you see, um, the sacrifice family members have for one another. Well, that is those, even those close relationships. And this is Jesus, right? This is Jesus doing so for the whole church. The second thing, the second characteristic that we should look for in following after Jesus, what right, is this humility? His humility. And remember what I identified or at least defined humility and We'll have to pick this up in the next few sermons. But remember, humility is, is, is the exaltation of oneself in, without reality. I want to help, here's what I mean by that. You may be very intellectual, smart. You may even be brilliant. But for you to take credit ultimately for it, well, is pride. It's Prideful, it's arrogance because it's God who gave you that mind. And God gave you that mind to be used for his glory and for the good, for, well, your good and for the good of others. That's the reality. And, and, and you know, it, it, it's not that you don't stand up and go, oh, I'm dumb. That's not, that's not humility. Humility is saying, no, listen, I, I can't, I take credit. I, don't, I can't take credit for what God has given me. Even the exercise of that brilliance, the working it out and training it, give glory to God. He, he put in there and he also put the desire in me to exercise it. I give God all glory. Yes, I, I've been gifted, I'm blessed, but God be the glory. And now let's use it and exercise this for his glory and for the benefit of the world, really. 
I'll stop at this one and we can pick up on the rest of these next week. Well, love. I mean, love is something that is so, I think love, um, humility is certainly abused, but love is certainly one of those ideas that are abused because there are some Christians that have this idea that love throws all inhibition, it, it throws all protection, it just throws everything to the wind and we're to, to expose ourselves to all kinds of danger and everything else because we're, you know, this is a dangerous person but I'm to love that person and so therefore I, I'm going to throw away everything and I'm just going to let whatever happen. That, that's not love. Love is acting in accordance with the commands of God. To love someone is to tell someone the truth. It's like the, Jesus telling the rich young ruler, well, you still lack one thing. And he told him the truth. And he went away sad. Truth, beloved, is the essence of love. Without truth, how can there be love? Without truth, how, how, how could we even identify with what love is if we didn't have truth as the standard to put next to it? To love one another is to be well, truthful with one another. And truth, to be truthful with one another, has to be coupled with what? Wisdom, prudence, kindness. There's a season, there is a time to be firm. Listen, there is absolutely a time for a judge to hit the gavel and go, may God have mercy on your soul. You have been a reckless criminal all your life and now it's done. There's a place for that. I mean, it saddens me when I read of murders and the one that the murderer has 60 accounts on his record, 60 violations, 60 arrests, where he was arrested or she was arrested and just let go. I mean, just the, the, these lifelong, there's a place for that to be put to an end. Why? Because they become a detriment to society, to its peace and its purity and safety. And what's the federal, what's the, the federal, what's the magistrate's job? Protect. To establish peace and justice. Promote it. So beloved, when we talk about following Jesus, I'm going to just come to the Paul, the apostle, Galatians 2, verse 20, and we'll pick up on the rest of these next week. But this is what I want to leave you with to think about. As you think about, are you following Jesus? Paul writes, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Because this is in essence what Paul is saying. I've been crucified with Christ. I've died with him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what we also, this, is, this must be our testimony. 
if we are following Jesus, we'll affirm Galatians 2.20. Spend some time today, brothers and sisters, thinking on this. Or this week. Take the time to look at the path that you're on and ask yourself, is this the path that our Lord would take? And I know it's philosophical in one sense because we're not physically following him, but let's look at Jesus's character. Let's look at those things about Jesus that ought to be true, that were true of him and should be true of us as disciples, as learners, as pupils, as students. Let us pray. Now, Father, as we examine ourselves from your word, give us the grace to repent of any area of our life, Lord, it is not in conformity with it. Lord, help us to see where we are not compatible with Christ. Or let us see where we have, Lord, veered off to the right or to the left. But Father, let our choices, let our our actions, our deeds, Lord, let our good works, which are sanctified by faith, Lord, let all of these things display for the whole world that we are following Jesus. And let it also be true of our brothers and sisters, Lord. Let us, let us, Lord, applaud one another. Let us encourage one another. Let us be glad for one another as, Lord, you bless any of us with the earthly possessions, Lord, that we see that your gifts are sovereignly distributed and administered, Lord, and let us learn how to rejoice with our brothers and sisters. Let us learn how to be glad for them and, Lord, happy for them, and let us, Lord, always be ready to rejoice on their behalf. But, Father, as good as this life is, let our choices, let the choices we make in this life reflect the greatness and the goodness of the life to come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.